welcome to another week of Technicolor Jesus, a podcast where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. In today's episode, Matt and I return to the West Coast and find our inner gangster rappers. Today, we talk about F. Gary Gray's Straight Outta Compton. I'm Adam, and I teach preaching and worship at Andover Newton Theological School in Boston. My name is Matt. I have no inner gangster rapper. I am the pastor here at Amherst Presbyterian Church in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. Matt, everyone has their inner gangster rapper. Well, I guess we'll find out. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. We take turns picking movies that are supposed to be relevant to our work as ministers. Last time we were together, Matt decided we had to go watch F. Gary Gray's 2015 movie, Straight Outta Compton. So that's what we've done. So in our first segment today, Justification by Faith, I'm going to ask him to defend his pick. Why does this movie, Straight Out of Compton, matter for the work of the church? In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Straight Out of Compton for the lectionary week ahead, which will be year C, April 24th, the fifth Sunday of the Easter season. Finally, we'll offer up some postludes, some theological thoughts from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So Matt, let me begin with the story as we enter into this discussion about Straight Out of Compton. As a high school student, I listened to a lot of gangster rap. I know every word to Boys in the Hood, both the movie and the song. I listened to Dre's The Chronic nonstop for nearly a year when I was in ninth grade. We used to drive through my middle-class suburban California neighborhood with subs in our trunks blasting rap music at high volumes. During uh, my high school basketball season, our very, very white basketball team was set to play Compton High School in Compton. When our bus hit the Compton city limits, we were immediately provided with a police escort. I remember being an adolescent on this bus and thinking that this was so cool. I thought we were getting just a taste of the Compton flavor. We thought that we were that much closer to Dre and Snoop and Cube. Of course, as a high school student of considerable privilege, I was an idiot. A sincere idiot, a well-intentioned idiot, but an idiot nonetheless. Straight Outta Compton makes abundantly clear that my experience as a consumer of rap was so far away from the experience of the producers of that rap. And this movie in particular is a reminder that our worlds are still segregated and that white middle-class relationships with art, with creativity, with family, with work, and with policing and law enforcement are wildly different from the impoverished minority's same relationships with those entities. The truth is, this movie is not trying to represent my experience. It doesn't matter what my 16-year-old self wants to think. And I think that's its strength. Still, Matt, given that the central audience of this movie is not really us, why talk about this movie? Justify your choice. I think this movie is a lot of things, and I, I think you're right. I, I do think that parts of this movie work a lot better than others, but I, I do think that the film says something to even my ministry, even as a white pastor and a white denomination and a predominantly white church. I, I think that even in that context, what I appreciated about this film is this film is a kind of conversation about what it means to be prophetic. 
and I don't just mean prophetic about race in America in 2016, but I think what it is for anybody to think about the general task of being prophetic within a culture. And I think a way for me of approaching this is to think about this movie in a relationship to other biopics. This movie has a lot of bad biopic tropes to it, but it has some distinguishing marks too. You know, one of the questions that a biopic almost always has to answer is, why did this person break out or become famous or special or important or whatever it was? And I kind of put together a little list of some of the answers that we get. And in some cases, a biopic argues that this person breaks out and is important because of some kind of strong moral fiber or strength of character. And I, you know, an obvious example to me here is Spielberg's Lincoln. Right. Where, yeah. And that's, that's clearly not the case in Straight Outta Compton. I mean, the movie works overtime to show that these rappers aren't moral exemplars, right? I mean, they have all kinds of moral complications. And that they're kids, really. Right, right, yeah. There's a, another answer that sometimes a biopic gives you is that these people break out because they're just really, really good at what they do. I think about, um, this happens a lot with music biopics. I think about the kind of natural talent that Walk the Line argues or for Ray. in the case of Johnny yeah. Cash. Right, right, right. And that's certainly the case here, but I don't think it's emphasized. I think this movie has a different theory about why NWA breaks out. And it's that they break out because they tell the truth about something. And the, the, the big line is, speak a little truth and people lose their minds, as Cube says, which is a line featured in the trailer and kind of one of the taglines for the film. So there's a, there's a kind of theory of social change embedded in this movie that's based on the prophetic effect. If you tell the truth, something happens. And of course, it also has market value to it. You sell a lot of CDs, you sell a lot of albums, maybe you even get out of Compton. So that's maybe the effect, but I think also here that the motivations are not even so pure. I mean, we have in this film some really competing prophetic motivations. Easy E seems to be in it, at least at the beginning of the film. He wants to sell records. He wants to make some money. Dre yeah, seems Easy, to be in Easy it. is an interesting character because he's also, uh, he flies in the face of that second trope, which is he doesn't seem to be very good at this, at least at the initial. He's not very right? good at it. Right, right, yeah. I mean, the the baseline genre scene where they are recording their first album is almost laughable here where he can't get that those first beats of boys in the hood at all dre kind of seems to be in it for the music um he's kind of presented as the artist cube on the other hand certainly very gifted at the art but it seems to be in this for some sense of justice i mean he's the one who's presented on the bus at the beginning where the where the, um, the gang stops him. He's the one who fights for his own justice in terms of how the royalties are distributed. I find those paradigms really interesting as I consider my own motivations for getting up into the pulpit on Sunday morning. Right, and then there are the, uh, you know, the two other members of NWA who sort of fade into the background. They're there for fame, money, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about this in terms of, and, and granted, it's a world apart, but... It reminds me that the prophetic work that I think about when I get up into the pulpit is really complicated, that it has some of these different competing motivations behind it, that part of me always is Easy e who is getting up because of some need for professional viability, and I'm trying to make a living, and I'm trying to get a paycheck. Part of me is drag, and I'm getting up because I am interested in the the art and the homiletical beauty of something that I can create for its own sake. And part of me is a cube, but I'm up there trying to right the moral wrongs of the universe. And 
it reminds me that I am a complicated subject as someone interested in something like a prophetic effect. Uh, and sometimes that effect is crazy. I mean, it, you tell the truth and people lose their minds, not always for the good. Uh, so that, that, that's, a, that's a lot of different stuff. I, I guess my question to you is, you know, did Straight Outta Compton spark your prophetic imagination? Yeah, it does at times. I mean, this, this movie is a force in its own way. Um, like you said, it has these moments where it, it, it can't help but move into typical musical biopic trope or cliche or bromide. Uh, especially in the end, you see this. Um, but for the first two thirds of the movie, it, it feels like it's driving uh, and it has just real force. And I think that's a, in many ways um, because of the performances. I think the casting in this movie is brilliant. I, I think also F. Gary Gray has a lot of style and brings a sort of frenetic movement, um, almost a sort of kinesthetic camera to, to, uh, to the movie. And so I felt the, the fire, so to speak, if we're talking about something that's so prophetic, I felt that there was a lot of fire in it and then it had to close. Um, and how do you, how do you close a movie when everyone who had that fire has sort of gone commercial? I mean, it's a, it's a tough move and, um, and that they didn't land this as well as they could have, I think is a testament to the, to the lives of the artists at the center of it, because the movie, I think in the first two thirds wants to say, you try and get out of Compton, but you can't ever get out of Compton. You want to get straight out of Compton. But in some ways, where you're from and who you were reared with constantly is playing um, a, a song in your head that you have to sing. And that makes a lot of sense for the first two-thirds of the movie until they've spent a lot of time out of Compton. And they no longer live there. And it's really no longer the shaping force on their identity like it was in that first album. And I think it's telling that the first album is there's only one. There's a second album, but it doesn't have Ice Cube and it's not as good as the first. And it's that first album that's a true force. And that there isn't a second one is a testament that the first one got him out of Compton. And as I think about this, um, I think that when this movie focuses on what it's like to be uh, an artist trying to grow within the cracks of this broken place, uh, it seems to have this sort of unquenchable fire. When it feels like it's constrained by the medium of film and storytelling in particular, it begins to diminish. What I like about it is that... Um, there is this prophetic edge that is most interesting also when the police are on the, on, on the screen. And to me, that spoke most loudly, not just because of our 2016 context where ideas of law enforcement and theories, philosophies, and um, uh, cultural practice of law enforcement in this country are up for debate in real um, important ways. Uh, and, I, um, I found this to be among the more effective uh, conversations in film that I've seen of that discussion. And I, th well, I think part of that is because there is this kind of distinction in the film between the 
the motivations of these characters and the effects that their work has that again the prophetic integrity of the work that they do is not measured by who they are or even what station of life that they're in they they want all kinds of different and weird things but what what they tap into is something bigger and more powerful and it's most vividly on display when you get these public interactions with the police especially the the scene when the police confront them on the sidewalk outside the studio or the scene in Detroit when they are when they've been forbidden from singing at the police and they do it anyway and it creates this pandemonium i mean that's i think as you've as you've articulated kind of where the film becomes the most alive and vivid right and that and that scene out on the sidewalk in redondo beach i think there or torrance or something like that i I've, i think is so good not for all of the complicated ways in which it is operating to have the law enforcement also be agent be an african-american to have jerry heller um try and advocate for these groups of people but totally misunderstand what's going on uh, it it seemed to be this like very important scene. I, I just found it troublingly honest in all of the complicated roles that people play in this system of um, of jurisprudence in this country. So I guess what I then emerge and struggle with is in my desire to say something prophetic on Sunday morning, which is not my only desire, but certainly it's part of it, is is the work of prophecy a function of who I am or a function of what I say? No, it seems like in some senses this film argues that what makes this music work is because it comes out of a very honest community. These Cube and Easy e and Dre come out of Compton and they can speak to that context in a way that no one else can speak to it. So it's part of it is the identity that they bring is the power of, of their witness. But part of it is that even though they are these really complicated figures, they manage to say something true and the truth of it sparks the imagination of all the folks who are listening. So I, that's right. what I'm kind of wrestling with for the church is who, you know, yeah. does it, why does it matter? Does, does it matter who I am as a part of a community of faith or a part of this congregation or a part of this town that I minister to that I've been here for just a few years or does it matter I, well, I think it's even more complicated than that, because if you look at NWA and you look at the prophets, they're not just being authentic to themselves. They're also playing roles here, too. So for as gangster as they want to be, none of the people in that group are part of a gang. They talk about it as if they are in order to get to some relevant truth of being African-American in Compton at a very specific time period. Similarly, I think of the, of the Hebrew prophets as this wild mix of performance artists and, um, you know, where they have to play these roles. So, you know, Jeremiah wears a yoke for a year or something and then like buries his clothes in the ground and then retrieves them to wear them around and then like smashes a pot outside of the um the gates of jerusalem i think you're you're right to recognize that there is this important overlap to looking at nwa as having this prophetic function 
as well as having um, a role to play, that, that, that the prophetic function isn't just something that is innate. It is something that we take on, almost a mantle, for instance. And it's something that it maybe is kind of thrust upon them as well. I mean, once they tap into that truth of the experience of the Compton community and its experience with law enforcement and everything else, that as soon as they tap into that, there's a certain role in conversation that's foisted upon them where there's, there's a certain expectation that they now stand in for this entire untended wound in American culture, whether they fit the bill or not in some ways, that, that it becomes bigger than they are. I mean, I think at least you could certainly make that argument with the biblical prophets that end up kind of having to play roles because the relationship between God and Israel at that point in history demands that someone stand into this particular right. gap. And, and with the biblical prophets too, you know, one of the words for prophecy, not the only word, but one of the words for prophecy is burden. And so uh, many of the biblical prophets, those books begin with the prophecy according to Amos, uh, the prophecy according to Hezekiah. And I'll, I think probably like six or seven of those opening lines in those prophetic books, the word there uh, means burden. So it's the burden of the prophet Amos and the burden of the prophet Hezekiah. These, these are the things that they take on to themselves. It's not something that they've found within themselves. It's something that they have to carry. And I think in many ways you do see that in this movie that um, at first it's fun to carry this. And after a while, it becomes a tremendous burden. And at some point, for those biblical prophets, I mean, I think especially for Amos and Jeremiah, who have spoken such uncomfortable truths to the community, at some point, nonetheless, the community comes around and does the work of canonization to bring them into the, the long story they want to tell about who they are. That's, I think, before we leave this initial conversation, I think we need to talk to some degree about just the very existence of this film in 2015 as a, and whether or not it, it is in its own way a kind of canonization of the original work of NWA, or to put a more, even more technical word on it, a kind of hagiography, right. a kind of writing about these figures that is meant to bring folks who were marginalized by mainstream culture in the early 90s and late 80s and, and bring them into the mainstream, or has the mainstream so moved that it can now accommodate voices that it couldn't accommodate before and made that make that even more complex by the fact that you have as the main producers of this film some of the very people who are depicted in it i mean this is it's super complicated the whole movie is totally enmeshed right i mean it's dre and ice cube being producers it's ice cube's son playing him his father in this movie right no wonder it's a remarkable likeness it's a great performance but it's still a little eerie it's a, he's he's it's star turn i think he does an amazing job in this movie and he should get uh he should get more roles the enmeshment speaks to something that's interesting to me for a number of different places um number one it's that these people can get movies made in a climate that it's very hard to get a movie this size made right so in hollywood right now a two million dollar movie can be funded pretty easily a $200 million movie that is a known entity or has superheroes in it can be made e easily. The $35 million movie is nearly impossible to make. And the fact that they were able to make it 
shows you that at some point, it's not just that they've been canonized as cultural icons. It's that they actually have business juice to walk into holiday and get their own story made. It'll be really interesting to see what, what the effect of that is too, because this movie made buckets of money. I mean, it made buckets and buckets of money. So it'll be interesting to see what the long-term outcome of that is in terms of you know, what kinds of stories can be told now based on the success of this film that couldn't be told before. Hopefully there will be some. All right, Matt, let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir, and we are looking at the lectionary passages for year C for the fifth Sunday of Easter. In the Acts passage, Peter has a vision of a sheet descending from heaven. We have the great Psalm uh, 148 where all of creation praises God's name. There's the great moment in Revelation where God promises to wipe away every tear. And then there is John's gospel where Jesus commands us to love. All in all, this is truly a fantastic lectionary week. There's so much to work with here. So Matt, as you think about Straight Out of Compton, what about this lectionary week jumps out at you? So you've already begun to talk about this a little bit and your question about whether or not these characters actually leave Compton. I kind of want to fall into that a little bit. And I think part of the argument here is that you never leave Compton because Compton is not just a place in this film. It's a necessary outcome of white supremacy. And because Compton is kind of home and you take that sense of where you come from with you, no matter what, Easy e is still himself, no matter where he goes. And whether you agree with my assessment of the film or not, what I, what I want to surprise you with is I want to talk about Revelation again. <laughs> I know this is shocking to you. Uh, this Revelation 21 passage is one of the great poetic passages, but I think we can give it a little specific attention. We have this language of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and God's promise to make all things new. Yeah, it's it, stunning. It's, it's stunning. stunning. It sounds so shiny. It sounds like something out of Tomorrowland, which, for the record, is a movie with much worse third act problems than Straight Outta Compton. <laughs> there are a couple of ways to think about this. I mean, one is to think that kind of Tomorrowland image, right? That everything that we have and are and that we are surrounded with gets thrown away and we get all new stuff. But... Looking at the text a little closely, it's not clear that that's really what John is going for. It seems like the alternate explanation may be that the things that we have and the things that we are get remade and recreated and rebuilt into something. And, the, and redeemed. And yeah. redeemed, right? The, the New Testament aphorism on this moment is that there's a difference between making all things new and making all new things. Right. And so what we are here is making... What John's attention to here is, is the work of making all things new. Think about this in the context of the early church under Roman rule. The, the point of this passage is you don't have to leave Jerusalem. It's your place. It's you. It's, it's, it's home. You invest where you are. The point is not to flee Roman occupation. The point is that God is working under Roman occupation through you. It's a little less fantastical than it might sound, but it's much more incarnational. And it's to tie it back to the kind of call and revelation generally to a work of non-compliance among the early church. The, the volunteers, as we said last week, right, are the ones who have their robes washed in blood. These are the folks who get their hands dirty in the place where they are with God's help. And we make this old, beat-up, occupied, violent city into a new thing. I'm thinking about that in relationship to, to staying in Compton. You don't leave because you're not waiting for 
God to make us a new Compton somewhere else. We're working for God to make this one holy and sacred and redeemed. Yeah, I, I was. I mean, I'm thinking about this in terms of what's going on in North Carolina right now too, and. Mm someone like Bruce Springsteen has decided that he's not going to play concerts in North Carolina so long as they continue to pass legislation that continues to discriminate against the GLBTQ communities. Sure. And then I was uh, following the the Twitter feed of Rhiannon Gimmids, who's the lead singer of the Carolina Chocolate Drops, and she said, I will play uh, concerts in North Carolina. Because I'm from North Carolina, and that's my home. And so I can't just leave it. So I got to change it. And so I'm going to keep playing and keep trying to use my voice in order to change things. And I, I think that there's something else, there's something similar going on here, which is we can try and change things by withholding, or we can try and change things by adding. And it seems to me that God continues to move in, this, um, in these weird ways where redemption comes via addition, Right, not not subtraction. Over and over, this picture of God as an artist makes sense to me. And specifically, I think about this in terms of often like the the tattoo cover up artists. You know, like you can't you can't just erase a tattoo. And so, what are you gonna do? Well, you try and see in this old beat up tattoo, or worse, this offensive tattoo, something else, and then you draw over it. And you create something beautiful out of something that was horrible. And as we sit in Easter tide, it's um, and contend with the role that the cross has in Easter. Is how can the cross now be beautiful? Well, it's been made beautiful because it's been redeemed by God. Ladies and gentlemen, you've got a pretty good preaching illustration for Sunday morning right there. <laughs> so, yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about um, the Acts passage. Good. That I think is so interesting and. And specifically about this idea of the profane and the clean. Um, Straight Outta Compton uh, goes to great lengths to, in some ways, it, it carefully avoids whether or not this is profane. And it shows Nancy Reagan here and there. Um, it mentions Tipper Gore. But it really doesn't take on ideas of censorship or these ideas that um, that straight out of Compton, while a cultural force, um, was uh, was a, a sort of artistic scourge on right. the culture. I mean, that stuff is is in the background, but never forwarded in the movie. Um, well, there's a lot of stuff in this film that they kind of assume you know, right? right. Or the, it's it's like most biopics that has that sense of, you know, we're gonna latch on at various points to the cultural baggage that you bring with you as an informed historian of pop culture and i think this is one of those places right and and reading the axe passage next to straight out of compton it made me again question like who made nancy reagan tipper gore and jesse helms the arbiters of taste uh why do their visions of a whitewashed world continue to gain a place of privilege and so uh, between Peter and, to some extent, the psalmist, you know, Psalm 148 is this beautiful moment of, of where the whole of creation begins to praise God. Um, even the crazy weird stuff, like sea monsters and dragons and leviathans, like, they're also praising God. Like, mm -hmm. they have their own place. The ugly beasts that scare us are also praising God. And 
Um, so when God asks Peter, um, or sa- says to Peter, what God has made clean, do not call profane. What does that mean, this side of Easter, Matt, when we claim that the world has been redeemed, that everything has been made clean? Um, and so it, it, I think it's a moment with this passage to begin to reflect on what exactly we call profane. Is it just the things that offend our religious sensibilities? Uh, as I was thinking about this, uh, I remembered that the Jewish scriptures deal with this quite a bit, actually, which is um, in a place like uh, Job or in, um, in other places in that sort of second temple era of Jewish scripture, you get this divine figure who shows up and we call him Satan, but the text calls him the Hasatan, the, the adversary. And there is this adversarial role that shows up in scripture. And it seems that this adversary is part of God's own heavenly court. And so suddenly this role of the devil is not some tempter is not like the king of the profane but is in some ways designed to help us sort of expose those places where our true devotion lies. And I think about NWA as prophetic on the one hand, but also I have to reflect at 16, why did I think it was so cool to defame women and to say terrible things and and have violent fantasies about killing people? The Hasatan does expose those parts of us that we think are hidden and they help us clean out our closets. And in some ways, that's what the profane does too. I'm I'm thinking about this right now in terms of uh, the J. Paul Getty Museum and the LA County Museum of Art um, have just put a retrospective together of Robert Maplethorpe's work, who is a photographer from the 60s, 70s and 80s. And a good portion of Maplethorpe's work is really graphic it's homosexual erotica it is um it's wild stuff um it treads all over taboo and he was making art at the same time that nwa was and i think that they function in different places along the same lines which is they're designed to expose those parts of us that um that really love this stuff um, for reasons that are more lascivious than we'd like to admit. So it is time for our last segment. This one is called Postludes, and it's just another chance to get a little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we are watching or following. So Adam, what's your postlude for this week? So I, I was inspired by Psalm 148, which uh, is, I think, my favorite psalm. Um, it is a psalm that I think has this beautiful um, argument towards creation care at the center of it. Uh, and I couldn't quite figure out how to connect creation care, straight out of Compton and Psalm 148 together. <laughs> so, um, um, so I'm reminded of something that I read, I think it's seminary by an Old Testament scholar named Terence Freitheim, who said that Psalm 148 is God's justification for the Endangered Species Act, which is his way of saying that with every 
animal that goes extinct, the praise of God is diminished. And, um, and that, that had a really profound effect on me in seminary. And I was reading a book by the chef Dan Barber recently called The Third Plate. And it's Barber's attempt to take seriously as a chef, as someone who has power to um, influence the buying and the culture's eating habits, how it is that he has been complicit in the degradation of, um, of our environment. And he tells a story in The Third Plate where he's talking to a Mennonite farmer. And he sees that the Mennonite farmer has a, a steel-wheeled tractor. And he says to him, why don't you just put rubber wheels on your tractor? You'll go faster. And the Mennonite farmer looks at him and says, if we put rubber wheels on the tractor, we'll go faster. And as we go faster, we won't be able uh, to see what's going on with the soil. And if the soil degrades, then our crops will degrade. And if our crops degrade, then our bodies will degrade. And if our bodies degrade, then our relationships degrade. And if our relationships degrade, then our worship degrades. And so we put steel wheels on our tractors in order to go slow. And so um, I've found such deep wisdom in that lately as someone who feels like the busyness of life has in some ways degraded my worship. And I'm trying to go slower now so that I can be a little bit more like the Leviathan or like the pine trees. So I can be a little bit more like all of those heavenly and earthly creatures that uh, show up in Psalm 148. So that's mine, Matt. How about you? So I want to talk about Blockbuster Video. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> exactly. Corporate went out of business, but there are some franchisees that are holding on. And there's a YouTube video that uh, is just out by a guy named Chris Stuckman. He makes a YouTube channel called Retro Rewind, where he, uh, he travels to one of the last existing Blockbuster videos. And I highly commend it to you for a number of reasons. Uh, it, he has this strong sense of nostalgia about walking into this place, right, that was the formative place of his childhood. He remembers going on a Friday night, as I do, and finding friends and so being many part memories. of a community. Yeah, <laughs> oh and, um, and, and it's where they would hang out. People hung out there all the time, he says. And then the other thing he remembers is the kind of touch and feel of it like the physicality of going into the store and picking up the boxes and looking at the art and counting which ones were in stock and which ones weren't in stock. He makes a spe special attention to like the place where you can actually buy a pizza inside the store. It's really easy to imagine this kind of nostalgic voice going through some church somewhere, right? These are the, the actual books and the pews and they had music in them and you could <laughs> paw through them and, and we, we would sing different songs based on the numbers that were in the bulletin and then there were bulletins and there were these pieces of paper and that would say what we did every day and and all your friends would come and it was this kind of thing we could all hang out like it was community and i i just want to share like i have a pretty healthy presbyterian suspicion of objects like old reformation suspicions about the holiness of objects that 
Reformation in some ways is based on a lot of anxieties about um, medieval Catholic church practices that believed that that box of skeletons was actually a saint, actually a reliquary that had magic powers, or that some particular tract of something had uh, had special authority over it that was worthy of worship. And I, I tend to be kind of distrustful of that. But in some ways, as technologies change and churches change, I think some of those tactile experiences of church are some of the things that we do best. And so that's kind of what I'm reflecting on is the the um the physicality of it the the smell of the sanctuary where i worship and the the feel of the hymnal and the feel of the bulletin and i'm reflecting back on i know exactly what the fabric pattern on the back of the pews in the church that i grew up looked looked like because i spent so many sermons tracing it in my eyes and watching the pattern change and degrade over time and i'm just reflecting on that some of some of those memories are the places in worship that I think implant in us the deepest. And uh, so as a reflection on that, I would send you to uh, it's Chris Stuckman Retro Rewind as he visits one of the last blockbusters. Yeah. That's what I've got, Adam. As you know, as I've become more trained, more schooling has made me long for more magic in my religion. I like the idea that touching this thing at the right time might produce some some effect. And my reform side is like Adam, you can't obligate God. And then there's another part that says, but maybe. So um, that sounds awesome. I'd love to I'd love to check it out. That's where we are. That about wraps it up for this episode of Technicolor Jesus, but we are not quite done yet. I got to pick this week and now it's Adam's turn. So what are you going to make me watch? So we're going to watch something completely different, but really not that different. Because if you think about the great American art forms. There are a few. Hip-hop is one of them. It was born out of the streets of the Bronx. Uh, the blues and jazz are another one. I think for the purposes of, uh, of what we do here, there is a third, and that is the American musical. You got me Hamilton tickets, didn't you? Yeah. Did you get me Hamilton tickets? We're going tickets? to Hamilton, Matt. Sweet! <laughs> We're going to Hamilton. Uh, no, we're not. But I was thinking, in what what could we watch that is reflective of the best of that American musical, especially as it's put on film and doesn't just live in the theater? And so next week, your task is to go to uh, Vienna and watch The Sound of Music. Wonderful. Uh, are we, are we watching the original or the live NBC We are not watching event? the live NBC event. Uh, I'll tell you why. Because there is only one Maria. And it's not Carrie Underwood? It is not Carrie Underwood. Um, All right, we'll talk fine. more about this next week. But um, yeah, Julie Andrews is a force of nature. And I love her. Um, so next week, we are going to watch The Sound of Music. So... If you are listening and you want to watch ahead, go and check it out. Well, that sounds great, Adam. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, that about wraps it up for us. Thanks for listening, folks. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes. If you like it, leave us a rating, leave us a review, tell a friend. Find us on Facebook and yell at us for all the stuff we got wrong. Everything you do helps other people find the show. And otherwise, we will see you next time. Thanks so much, Adam. Thanks, Matt. Come ain't no city quite like mine
Now we can all celebrate. We can all harvest the rap artists of NWA. America target our rap market is controversy and hate. Harsh realities we in. Made our music translate to the dealers, the hood rich and the broke that play. With them gorillas that know killers that know where you stay. Rolex Kush crack that case. Ten bottles of rose. This was brought to you by Dre. Now every mother in here say, Look who's responsible for taking coffee into glass. You know I'll make them holler.